You know, the prophet Jeremiah is one of my heroes. Imagine a pastor who ministered faithfully in the same field for over 40 years and yet never saw a single convert. His average Sunday attendance was zero, and yet he never gave up. Here's a man who was opposed by princes and priests, even the populace. He was under constant persecution from every corner of his community, and yet Jeremiah labored faithfully. He labored preaching and pleading with the southern Hebrew kingdom of Judah. And yet in the end, he had very few tangible results, earthly results, physical results to show for his efforts. Imagine Pastor Jeremiah. He never built a building, never got on the radio, never developed a youth group. He hired only one staff person his whole ministry. He never had enough offering to even talk about a budget. Jeremiah did author a book. He gave it the not-so-catchy title, Lamentations, which doesn't really make you want to rush out and buy a copy, does it? Lamentations? Well, what would you expect from a man known as the weeping prophet? Actually, Lamentations is a very good book. It never made the Jerusalem bestseller list, though, because the only folks who bought it were the Babylonians, the enemy at the time. You see, in the New Testament, it was said of the Apostle Paul's ministry, he turned the world upside down for Jesus. I like to think of Jeremiah as having the opposite statement made about his ministry. Serving Jesus turned Jeremiah's world upside down. Granted, Jeremiah had a tough message to preach. God called him to warn the southern kingdom of impending judgment. The Babylonians were a-coming. I heard of a church fellowship hall once with framed Bible verses all along the wall. Most of the passages, passages extolled the mercies of God, but not the verse that caught the attention of the wedding party that day. You see, the newlyweds were posing for pictures next to a plaque quoting Matthew chapter 3, verse 7. The plaque read, Flee from the wrath to come. Well, this was the essence of Jeremiah's message. He preached, repent, flee from God's wrath. And it was a tough pill for the people to swallow. Jeremiah was called on to preach an unpopular message, but he was also called on to preach to a tough crowd. You see, his audience was a religious people, steeped in tradition. They had heard it all before. They felt sure of their salvation. They were proud of their religious heritage. They didn't want to be challenged with anything new. You see, the northern kingdom of Israel, that was the place that had been occupied by the liberals, but this was the southern nation of Judah. This was the south, the Bible belt of the promised land. They were pretty stubborn to hear the message Jeremiah had to preach to them. You see, here's my point. No aspiring pastor would ever turn to Jeremiah to glean strategies for church growth. The prophet's memoirs were not about tangible results. In fact, if you measure ministry success by nickels and noses, then Jeremiah was an abject failure. But if you measure success by faithfulness and by integrity, then look no further than Jeremiah as the classic example. You see, the book of Jeremiah is a survival manual 
for pastors and church leaders ministering in tough places to tough people. It holds some important keys to truly successful ministry. But realize, this book isn't just for pastors. Jeremiah is for anybody who's tried to serve God in a difficult situation. It's for people who've wanted to make a difference in their world, only to end up disappointed and dejected. The Jeremiahs of the church consider themselves more a failure than a success. They started out with great expectations, but they feel now like God has let them down. This morning, I want us to look at four episodes from the prophet Jeremiah's life and ministry, and I want us to note the lessons that he learned from each situation. You see, if you're going to remain faithful in a hard place, you too have to do four things. First, if you're taking notes, jot these down. You need to obtain some endurance. Second, you need to maintain a repentance. Third, you have to retain your importance. And then lastly, you need to regain your reliance. Let's look first here in Jeremiah chapter 12. Understand this chapter comes on the heels of a crushing betrayal in Jeremiah's life. His family and friends in his own hometown of Anathoth have thrown him under the bus. In fact, a group of former so-called friends have plotted his assassination. Once a man asked me, what he thought was a probing question. He said, Pastor Sandy, of all ministries' disappointments, which is the most difficult for you to overcome? He thought it would take me a while to answer, but no, it didn't. Without the slightest hesitation, without a moment's meditation, I answered him, the wounds inflicted by a supposed friend. I got to tell you, I still ache over times when I was led to believe that a friend had my back that he'd be there for me when I needed him, that he could be counted on only to discover that he was first to run when times got tough. I love how the poet puts it, against a foe I can defend, but heaven help me from a disloyal friend. Well, Jeremiah here, he's enduring the same thing. He's reeling, he's still bleeding from his own disappointment. When he writes out a prayer, verse 1, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I plead with you. Yet let me talk with you about your judgments. Lord, i got a few things I need to hash out with you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why are those happy who deal so treacherously? You have planted them, yes. They have taken root. They grow, yes. They bear fruit. You are near in their mouth, but far from their mind. But you, O Lord, know me. Jeremiah is struggling with the age-old problem, why do the wicked prosper and the righteous lack? But understand, he's framed it in the context of ministry. Jeremiah is talking about the evil men of Anathoth, but Anathoth was a Levitical city. Its residents were priests. And Jeremiah is asking the question, Lord, I'm a good man trying to do a good work and I can't catch a break. And yet these bad guys dressed up in priestly clothes, they appear to be prospering. Why is that? We've all asked those questions at times, haven't we? Well, Jeremiah continues his prayer in verse 3. You have seen me and you have tested my heart towards you. Now, Here's what's taken me a long time to realize. 
Notice Jeremiah speaks of God's test in the past tense. He says, you have tested. As if at some point God gives us a final exam. Well, understand, He doesn't. There is no final exam with God. God prefers pop tests that just keep popping up over and over and over again. He does. In C.S. Lewis's classic book, The Screwtape Letters, Screwtape, the senior demon, gives advice to his apprentice demon, Wormwood. He instructs him on how to defeat the Christian to whom he's been assigned. I quote, Keep the subject thinking that his trials will be over. So when they're not, he'll be continually disappointed. It's okay if he learns a lesson or two through his trials, just as long as you keep him thinking that one day all his trials will be gone. Whatever you do, never allow him to accept his trials as a permanent part of discipleship, something he must learn to endure. You see, Jeremiah is complaining. He's saying, God, you have, you have tested me. Now it's time to vindicate me, to prove that I'm right. He says, pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and prepare them for the day of slaughter. How long will the land mourn and the herbs of every field wither? The beasts and birds are consumed for the wickedness of those who dwell there because they said, he will not see our final end. God, it's time to settle some scores. But look at how God answers Jeremiah in verse 5. <clears throat> if you have run with the footmen and they have wearied you, then how can you contend with horses? And if in the land of peace in which you trusted they wearied you, then how will you do in the floodplain of the Jordan? And this is not the response that Jeremiah expected. Jeremiah is looking for a little relief from his hardships. Instead, God tells the sulking prophet, If you think it's hard now, man, just wait. It's going to get rougher. God is telling Jeremiah, rather than whine because of a little difficulty, it's time to buck up and hunker down and get a grip. It's time to buckle your chin strap, buddy. The tests and challenges aren't over. They're just getting started. He says, Jeremiah, if you can't hang with the foot soldiers, how in the world are you going to go out and fight with the cavalry? You see, when the Jordan River was at normal levels, the animals, they stayed close to its banks and to a steady supply of water. But when the Jordan flooded and water was more plentiful, the wild animals, they were able to sort of roam out into the neighborhoods. They became a danger to the residents. And God is asking Jeremiah, if you're afraid of the stray dog now, how are you going to handle it when the lion and the tiger suddenly appear prowling around in your backyard? In other words, if you're sulking and licking your wounds now, if you aren't getting up and keeping on now, how are you going to make it when it really gets rough? You have got to obtain some endurance. Years ago, the Chicago Bears, they were playing on Monday Night Football. I was watching. Walter Payton had cut off tackle for a nice pickup. When all of a sudden the announcer commented, he said, In his career, Walter Payton has carried the football for over nine miles. His fellow broadcaster added, Yes, and he's been knocked down every 4.6 yards. That puts it in perspective, doesn't it? 
We glamorize a man's total yardage, but how often we forget how many times he was knocked down accumulating those yards. And it's no different in life. You won't gain a lot of yards. You won't score a lot of points without a few sore ribs. My son Nick was the star running back for his youth league football team. Nick was a threat to go all the way every time he touched the football. Took after his dad. And yet on occasion, Nick would take a hard lick, and he'd become timid. He'd want to come out of the game. Again, he took after his dad. (laughs) And I'd have to tell him, I'd say, son, shake it off. If you don't keep toting the ball, you'll never score. And the same is true with each of us. I can't cry and want to quit every time life gets a little rough. Especially when God says that the closer we get to the end of time, the tougher it's going to get for us from time to time. Amy Carmichael wrote a poem. It's one of my favorites. In it, Jesus speaks to you and me. Have you no scar? No hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear you sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail your bright ascendant star. Have you no scar? Have you no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers spent. They leaned me against the tree to die and rent. My ravenous beast that encompassed me, I swooned. Have you no wound? No wound? No scar? Yes, as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me. But yours are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wound? no scar. You know what they did to our Lord Jesus, and now He's called on us to follow Him. Did you really think it was going to be easy? You see, to be successful in God's eyes, you need to obtain some endurance. But you also need to maintain a repentance. Turn with me, if you will, over to Jeremiah chapter 15. Just a few pages over to Jeremiah chapter 15. It's just a guess on my part, but Jeremiah's words in chapter 15 may have come on the heels of a midlife reflection. I heard of a fellow who did one of these midlife evaluations. He concluded that he was as well off as the economy. He said, my hairline is in recession. My waistline is suffering from inflation. And altogether, I'm in a depression. And this is how Jeremiah felt about his life at its midpoint. The prophet had gotten really depressed. Let's pick up Jeremiah's complaint here in verse 15. He says, O Lord, you know. Remember me and visit me and take vengeance for me, O my persecutors. In your enduring patience, do not take me away. Know that for your sake I have suffered rebuke. You hear what he's saying? He's saying, Lord, I've been a victim for your sake. I've suffered unrighteous persecution. He continues, he says, your words were found and I ate them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. At the time, the priest thought that there were no more copies left of the law. But Jeremiah remembered when the high priest Hilkiah found one of those lost manuscripts. 
He rejoiced that God's Word had been rediscovered. And Jeremiah made it his life's pursuit to read the Word, to study it, to consume it, to love God's Word. It quenched a deep down thirst inside. It caused his heart to dance. Jeremiah adds in verse 17, I did not sit in the assembly of the mockers. In other words, I didn't just read God's Word, but I applied it to my life. I separated myself from the evil around me in order to live a good and holy life. But here's where his attitude sours. Nor did I rejoice. I sat alone because of your hand, and you have filled me with indignation. Why is my pain perpetual and my wound incurable, which refuses to be healed? Will you surely be to me like an unreliable stream? as waters that fail. When I read those words, I cringe. And for two reasons. One, because they're so arrogant. Who is Jeremiah to accuse the Almighty God of unfaithfulness? The prophet here is way out of line. But the second reason I cringe is that Jeremiah's words sound so much like my own at times in my life. I too have walked down some dark roads where I wanted to have it out with God. I thought that I'd done everything right. I'd stood up for Jesus. I'd taught His Word. I'd tried to live a holy life. So why wasn't my life being blessed? There have been times when I've come perilously close to calling the God of all faithfulness an unreliable stream. And God spoke to me in the same manner He spoke to the prophet Jeremiah. Verse 19. Therefore, thus says the Lord, If you return, then I will bring you back. You shall stand before me. If you take out the precious from the vile, you shall be as my mouth. It was in August of 1994 that a ship, the Columbus Isoline, was off the Florida Keys. It was doing some environmental research. University of Miami scientists were collecting data to help manage oceanic oil spills. But while maneuvering near some coral, this ship, it hit a reef, gouged a hole in its side. 200 gallons of diesel fuel spilt into the deep blue sea. A ship polluted what it had been trying to preserve. And I have done the same. See, here's the irony. You can do all the right stuff. You can serve God and provide for your family and seek to make your spouse happy and yet do it with a bad attitude. You do it begrudgingly, out of mere duty, or you do it proudly for your own glory, or you give with the expectation of getting back. It's sort of like, Lord, I'm doing this for you because I'm expecting you to do a little bit back for me. You see, either way, praise might be coming from our lips, but at the same time, poison can be brewing in our hearts. And I remember God telling me, just as He did Jeremiah, that He was not the unreliable stream. I was. Again, serving God can be tricky business. Hey, you can wander from God even while serving God. It amazes me, but here, Jeremiah, he's embroiled in ministry. 
He's the pastor, no less. When all of a sudden God tells him, if you return, then I will bring you back. He's probably thinking, Lord, I'm at the church seven days a week. What do you mean when I return? Where have I gone? But the truth is, is that we can stray from God even while supposedly serving Him and following Him. Again, it's possible to do the right things, but with the wrong motivation. Oh, the Lord will still use Jeremiah. There's still a lot in his heart that God considers precious, but there's also some things that he calls vile. And it was time for Jeremiah to clean up the vile. He needs to maintain a repentance. Realize the polluting of a motivation is such a subtle occurrence. I mean, when does righteous anger turn into vindictiveness? When does legitimate concern for your kids or for the people around you sort of morph into unhealthy control? When does admiration for another person's gifts in ministry erode into jealousy? When does encouragement turn into manipulation? Or a vision for the future turn into an ingratitude for what God has already done in the past? See, these are all fine lines, but we know when we've crossed them, don't we? It's so easy to cop an attitude even while serving the Lord. There's only one safeguard. We need to maintain an attitude of repentance. A constant sifting of the precious from the vile needs to be occurring in our hearts at all times. See, here's what happens to us all. We set expectations that are not from God. They're our own visions of grandeur. And when God doesn't cooperate, we get mad, even in Him. We accuse the Almighty of breaking His promises, of being that unreliable stream. But these were promises He never made, just ones we imposed on Him. We sit back and say, well, why am I not rich? I wanted to be rich by now. Or why am I not successful? Or why am I not married? Or why, we, why can we not have kids? And on and on it goes. See, these are all good plans, but are we sure they're God's plans for us? We need to stay humble and open and obedient to God. Don't make selfish demands of a holy God. Trust in His wisdom. You see, there's much in you that God considers precious. You are His workmanship. The Savior cherishes His bride, but along with the precious, there's also some vile in your life, and we need to clean up the oil spill before it does permanent damage. Let's maintain a repentance. And then let's also retain our importance. Turn with me over to Jeremiah chapter 20. In this chapter, the prophet Jeremiah becomes so discouraged, he turns in his resignation. Which reminds me of the pastor who resigned before his congregation at the end of the Sunday service. After he read his letter, he, there was a lady right down front over here that started weeping and sobbing. The pastor was flattered that she was so disappointed he was leaving. He said, sister, he said, oh, don't, don't worry. The church board is going to find a new pastor far better than your current pastor. She sort of snapped back and said, sure, that's what they said last time. Well, in chapter 12, God told Jeremiah the horses were coming. Now in chapter 20, trust me, he runs into a stampede. 
the persecution intensifies. Pashur, the captain of the temple guard, scourges Jeremiah. He throws him into the stocks. In verse 2 of chapter 20, the Hebrew word translated stocks, it means literally causing distortion. Stocks were not just designed for simple restraint, they were intended for torture. Here, Pashur, he puts Jeremiah on the rack. He stretches the joints in his body out like a lump of pizza dough. It was an extreme form of punishment. This terrible ordeal stretched Jeremiah to what he thought was his limit. He was tired of ministry, tired of persecution, tired of disappointment. With his wounds still throbbing, Jeremiah writes God a letter of resignation. He pins in verse 7, O Lord, you induced me and I was persuaded. You are stronger than I and have prevailed. In other words, I didn't sign up for this, Lord. What's happened is not what I had expected. God, you twisted my arm. You forced me to be a minister. Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet, and I'm sure it's here that his tears stain the page. He cries out, I am in derision daily. Everyone mocks me. For when I spoke, I cried out. I shouted, violence and plunder. Because the words of the Lord was made to me a reproach and a derision daily. Then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. That's it. Tell the elders, here's my key to the church. This Sunday will be my last. Jeremiah is hanging up his pastoral cleats. The prophet of God has tasted all the disappointment this poor fellow can handle. I believe when Jeremiah went home that night, he couldn't sleep. And so he did what he did other nights. He opened his Bible. And as he began to read, he considered that maybe he'd made a rash decision. He concluded in chapter 20, verse 9. He says, but his word was in my heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back, and I could not. Oh, Jeremiah, he wanted to quit. He was determined to quit. The poor fellow tried to quit, but he just couldn't quit. For as he read the scripture, he rediscovered its wonders and warmth. The Holy Spirit became his own personal Hilkiah. God's word rekindled his passion. It burned a fresh fire in his heart. Jeremiah remembered the love of God and the needs of the people and why he had agreed to God's calling in the first place. He says, For I heard many mocking, fear on every side. Report, they say, and we will report it. All my acquaintances watched for my stumbling, saying, Perhaps he can be induced. Then we will prevail against him, and we will take our revenge on him. In short, if I tap out now, the scoffers will think they're right. That I was a joke all along. You know, it's funny. These were the same reasons that Jeremiah gave for quitting. Resistance, ridicule, persecution, betrayal. And yet the very reasons for his quitting became the very reasons and motivations for him to press on. As he analyzed his life's vexations, he rediscovered the reasons that he was needed in the first place. And I've also prayed these prayers, prayers that came full circle. Oh Lord, I want to quit, 
People are so stubborn and, and they're frustrating, Lord. And it's so difficult to make a difference these days. Lord, people need you. Please send somebody to teach them and love them and help them realize their need. And lo and behold, I just signed up for the same job I was trying to quit. Often a Christian will get frustrated for the very reasons that they're needed. Hey, if the members of our church and our community and our family were perfect, if they all had it all together and were never irritating to anybody, then they wouldn't need us. If your family was perfect, parents, your kids wouldn't need you. People's problems are the excuse for our existence. Hey, if there was no one hurting for our help, God would just take us home. But this church... Hey, your church, this is your church, and it's very much needed. What we do from week to week is vital. The role that we play, the role that you play in your church, perhaps the role you could play is far more significant than you might have thought. You see, the church provides for people what no one else supplies today. As Paul said to Timothy, we are the pillar and ground of the truth. The church today is the world's last hope. The Christian community is the only distributor of the words of eternal life. And your involvement in it helps us be the only bridge that links certain people to God. As Christians, we need to realize the significance of our mission and our calling. We need to retain our importance. Jeremiah adds another thought to his attitude turnaround here in chapter 20. He says in verse 11, But the Lord is with me as a mighty, awesome one. That's good news. As Jeremiah read God's word, it restored to him an awareness of God's presence. The Lord was with him. And the presence of God ignites the fire of God in our hearts. It always does. W.E. Sangster of London once interviewed a man for ministry. This fellow confessed that he was a shy man, not the sort of person that would set the Thames River on fire. That was a proverbial way of saying, stir up the city. Sangster replied, he said, my dear brother, I'm not interested to know if you could set the Thames on fire. What I want to know is if I picked you up by the scruff of your neck and dropped you in the Thames, would it sizzle? What about you and me? Do we still sizzle? Are we on fire for God? Does the fire of God burn in our hearts? Or have the struggles of church life and have the rigors of ministry and have the challenges of being a witness cooled our passion for the mission God has given us? This is why we need to refocus on the big picture of the church. We need to retain our importance God will use us if we remain faithful to Him. And finally, we need to regain our reliance. Let's look at one more incident from Jeremiah's life. Chapter 38. Chapter 38. <laughs> and you think you've been mired down in your life. Just wait till we see what happens to Jeremiah. Chapter 38, beginning in verse 6, we're told, So they took Jeremiah and cast him into the dungeon of Malchiah the king's son, which was in the court of the prison. 
And they let Jeremiah down with ropes. And in the dungeon there was no water but mire. So Jeremiah sank in the mire. This was probably a cistern, an old water reservoir. Jeremiah's message had again angered the false prophets. and With the king's permission, they had tossed Jeremiah into deep, thick, crawling, suffocating sludge. We once had a fellow in our church who owned a company that cleaned out water towers and cooling tanks. And one day, he described for me what we would expect Jeremiah to find at the bottom of one of these cisterns. He said, first of all, the slime would be real puffy, very fine and light, which would make it impossible for you to wipe off. There was no way for Jeremiah to get the mess out of his hair, out of his eyes. It engulfed him. It also would have created a claustrophobic feeling. The mire stunk, and it gave off toxic gases that might disorientate his thinking. My friend told me that Jeremiah's ordeal would be like you or I diving into a septic tank. And cold. Long before he starved to death, he'd die of hypothermia. The temperature in a subterranean cave is 57 degrees. You die in water 75 degrees. Jeremiah's wrinkled body would be shaking and numb, buried in the cold slime. And remember, the man is in his 60s at the time. What a way to spend your retirement. This was a hopeless, helpless situation. But here's what happens. Out of nowhere, with no prior mention, a friend of Jeremiah's comes on the scene. He understands the conditions that Jeremiah faces. He has access to intercede before the king on Jeremiah's behalf. He brings resources to help lift Jeremiah from the pit. And his name, Ebed-Melech. It means servant of the king. And I love how this man helps Jeremiah. Verses 11 through 13 describe how Ebed, he gathers soft rags and old clothes to place under Jeremiah's arms so that the ropes don't cut into his sensitized skin, his tenderized flesh. He and the 30 men with him, they lift Jeremiah out of the mire in the most gentle and loving and tender way possible. Hey, there are times when God does allow you and I to get stuck in the muck. We get mired in an impossible situation, especially when we've been leaning on our own ingenuity and in our own effort. And it's the helplessness of the mire that reminds us of how much we really need God's help. It's there that we regain our reliance in God. And when we do, Ebed-Melech can come out of nowhere. The Holy Spirit is also a servant of the King. He is the comforter that Jesus promised to send to us. And suddenly, He can appear on the scene to lift us up and to clean us off and to give us hope. If you've been mired down, if you've been let down, God's Spirit wants to tenderly and gently and mercifully pull you out of your mire pit. The Spirit of God is faithful to renew our calling and rekindle fresh vision and re-energize us for ministry. We need to regain the reliance that we once placed on Him. 
know, it's interesting. Ebed-Melech, he pulls Jeremiah out of the mire with the help of 30 men. I haven't actually counted this morning, but it looks like there's more than 30 of us here today. And we need each other. Just as much as Jeremiah needed those 30 men. You see, it's lonely in the mire. You become disoriented from the toxic nature of your disappointments. Like Elijah, you can think that you're all alone. Like Moses, your arms get weary and start to droop. We forget that there is a servant of the king and that there are 30 men nearby who know our need and who want to lift us up. Today, if you need help, we're going to have some folks ready to pray. Probably not 30, but they'll be right down there by the prayer room. God's Spirit still likes to use God's people when it comes to pulling us out of the mire. Let me close with one final thought. In Christopher Columbus's logbook, numerous days contained a single, simple, two-word entry. After several days, all he wrote was, sailed on. Just sailed on. And likewise, if we keep sailing on, there's no telling what we'll end up discovering. Sometimes nothing else happens, but we just keep on. If you just keep on, who knows what you'll end up discovering. I believe that every day we sell on, every day we hang on, every day we persevere, it gives God one more day to do something good and great in and through us. Right now, your situation looks grim. Discouragement has taken its toll. Yet I believe, I know, that if you'll obtain some endurance and you'll maintain a repentance and you'll retain your importance and you'll regain your reliance, in essence, if you'll stay usable, you'll give the God who loves you and wants to bless you an opportunity to do just that. And so, sail on. Father, we thank you. 